Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. In the latest issue of The Critic magazine, Julie Bindle reveals how abused women are being let down by domestic violence perpetrator programmes, while Louise Perry shows how the political labels of left and right are irrelevant for feminists. In today's podcast, David Scullion talks to both Louise and Julie about their articles and the future of feminism in the West. Hello and welcome to The Critic Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Louise Perry and Julie Bindle, uh, who are going to be discussing uh, what they've written about in the latest issue of The Critic. Um, Louise, you uh, wrote this month about uh, why British feminists should not be looking to the left or to the right uh, when they're making their decisions. They should be asking what's good for women. Traditionally, I think you wouldn't really have associated feminism with the right. Can you just explain how you came to your conclusion? I mean, I think I still wouldn't associate feminism with the right, more that I think that its relationship with the left has become very painful, and particularly in Britain, I think that's becoming more and more obvious. I think in America, the the character of the right is so much more frightening from a feminist perspective, where you've got abortion as a really, really live issue, you've got a really... Um, a really frightening Christian right that, that still has an awful lot of power. Um, I think that feminists are, have quite rightly been so alarmed by um, the worst of the right in America that they've sort of unthinkingly joined forces with the left on every issue. Whereas in Britain, we don't really have that sort of political landscape, right? We don't really have Christian right. And actually, if you look around now at the sort of publications or political parties or, or public figures who have the most uh, useful things to say on feminism, they're not necessarily from the left. You know, it's thinking about, so one of the examples I talk about in the piece is the um, Gender Recognition Act reforms or the efforts to, to reform, reform the Gender Recognition Act, which was introduced under the May government, which tried to introduce a system of um, self-ID, which would allow trans people to identify as their preferred sex without any kind of medical gatekeeping or legal gatekeeping. Um, and was very, very strongly resisted by a section of gender-critical feminists. And that was a really great example of feminists actually kind of being neither neither attached to the left nor the right, because it was a Conservative government that, that, that first introduced the proposals, but then it was a Conservative government that also got rid of them in the end, earlier this year when uh, the, the feminist campaign against the reform succeeded. Um, you saw uh, publications like The Spectator supporting the feminist side, but you also saw publications like The Morning Star. You saw The Guardian pushing back against it. And it, it really wasn't clear at all that there was, uh, there was, a, that, that there was a partisan bias on this issue. It was really a, um, a detachment of feminism from both left and right, which I'd argue is exactly what we need to be seeing more of, because very often we've, we've fallen into the trap, I think, as feminists, of thinking that the left are our natural allies. And we see more and more often cases like on the trans issue, but also <coughs> things like prostitution or porn, that actually that isn't necessarily the obvious, the obvious conclusion to draw. And sometimes being deliberately nonpartisan 
is the most productive thing to do. Because you say in the piece that uh, feminists in Britain look to big sister America for guidance. Mm. I'd often fail to remember that American feminists really haven't achieved all that much. Yeah, I think that we're obsessed with America. I mean, we're, we're obsessed with America as a whole culture. It's not just feminists who are guilty of this. You know, we're, we're constantly attentive to their politics. And it's, it's understandable because they are the biggest Anglophone country in the world. And so much um, American media is read in this country. And also social media is dominated by American voices. But it, it, it's a mistake to see the, the two countries as being the same, particularly on, on, on a lot of feminist issues. And I think we've made the mistake of um, taking our guidance from, from the feminist discourse in America rather than thinking more critically about, about, about what's going on in this country. Um, Julie, you have found yourself at odds with uh, some on the left uh, <coughs> on certain issues. Have you found that to be true as well? See, I don't find myself on odds with the left. I find myself at odds with men on the left and the way that some women seem to capitulate to the dominant male discourse and also refuse to engage with the fact, because it is a fact, and Louise pointed this out in her piece, that there is a lot of hypocrisy when men that define as leftist refuse to apply that Marxist analysis to, for example, the sex trade. So when it comes to marketing women's bodies, whether it's breast milk, prostitution, surrogacy, all of a sudden, men on the left don't have a critical analysis of the marketplace, of the free market economy. Um, and also, of course, there's sexism on the left because there are men on the left. So I don't see myself as allying myself with the left. I see myself as a leftist who resists the sexism within that left sphere. Um, and yes, I mean, I've, I've come to blows on a regular basis with the rank hypocrisy and misogyny from some of those men, and also from the unwillingness of some women on the left to define first and foremost as feminists, arguing that, for example, capitalism is the only evil, and if you were to destroy or dismantle capitalism and replace it with some kind of quasi-socialism, all of a sudden women will be liberated. And we know that's not true because we can see from societies where women have lived under communism, under socialism, where, yes, things are better for them, educationally, they can feed their children, such as Cuba, for example. But there's still the same levels of sexual violence, sexual abuse. And although women can become doctors, um, in a way, kind of, well, with relative ease compared to even in the West, they are still at risk of, of male violence and sexual harassment. So you think then that's a lie that, that uh, socialism will solve sexism? Yes, absolutely. Socialism, socialism will not solve sexism. Women's liberation will solve sexism. And we have men on the left and men on the right who are and can be and exercise uh, their, their right, as they see it, to be sexist or even misogynistic and keep women under control. And there's no way that you could have an equal society simply because we have a socialist society when women are not liberated from the patriarchal constraints that we live under right now. Louise, you say that uh, women often uh, feel let, let down by the left. You mentioned the uh, grooming gangs, uh, the, the victims of the grooming gangs in uh, cities in the north of England who have fallen into the arms of the far right. Why is it you think the right is seen as a place for women let down by the left? Yeah, I mean, I think what's happened uh, terribly with in places like Rotherham, which had... Um, um, child grooming gang um, cases is that the left absolutely dropped the ball on it you know it wasn't that the 
sometimes it is represented by groups like the UDL that the only reason that this happened is because of uh, fears of being seen as racist um, among local authorities and police and so on. That wasn't the only reason. There were lots of other things going on, and it's it you know any I think any feminist will tell you that it's no surprise to see institutions letting down victims of sexual violence. There was, however, that race factor which made a lot of letters commentators absolutely allergic to talking about Rotherham. Um, and I think that was, uh, was an absolute tragedy and it meant that the victims were terribly let down. It also meant that this, ca this case would, could be captured by the right, who could say quite persuasively, look, you know, the, the powers that be don't want you to talk about this. They could present themselves as being the victimised group. And unfortunately, yes, you did sometimes have victims flocking to groups like EDL and Tommy, Tommy Robinson because they were the only voices speaking out for them. And of course, we know that the EDL are not really interested in advocating for women's rights. They were just being opportunistic and they cared about this only because of the racial component. And I think that's the awful thing that you end up with um, when the left drop the ball on this sort of thing. You end up with no one advocating for the most vulnerable people in society. So do you think if the uh, grooming gangs were uh, predominantly made up of um, white men and the victims were also white, do you think the left would have been would have taken this as a big issue? Um, I say yes cautiously, only because, as Julie was saying, prostitution in recent decades has been another terrible blind spot um, in parts of the left. I mean, it's, I, I do I do want to be careful not to talk about the left as a monolith because there are obviously lots of different elements within it. The the, the elements of the left who um, are very pro-choice, pro-freedom, very sort of hyper-liberal, um, they would tend to view prostitution as being a morally neutral industry in which women can partake, you know, without any without any harm, without any judgment restriction, and so on. They, regardless of the the race of anyone involved, they are not on the whole going to be critical of anything involving the commercialisation of sex, whether in the porn industry or um, street-based prostitution or brothels or whatever. But it is true that Rotherham just have that kind of extra level of um, toxicity from a left-wing perspective because of because of the function of race. And of course, it, I know it has been it has been incredibly toxic. It has been awful to see it being exploited by racists on the far right. But also, in some ways, this was an open goal for those racists because they were able to represent themselves as being the voice of reason and the voice of um, the voice of the marginalised, which is a real tragedy. Um, Julie, you uh, this month have taken aim at domestic violence perpetrator programmes. You say in your piece that as a prison reformer. I would empty jails of all but the most dangerous individuals, but you rank the people who are on these perpetrator programmes as the most dangerous individuals. Well, I don't rank every single man who goes through a domestic violence or sex offender perpetrator programme as the most dangerous. The point that I was making was that there is pretty much an amnesty on men who commit acts of violence against women, apart from, and not always even, those that are seen as monstrous. So the, uh, the masked rapist with a knife climbing into the back window of the sleeping woman's flat and creeping around in the dark, when in fact the majority of sex offences are committed by men who, who know their victims, who are known to the victims. And of course some domestic violence incidents are far less serious than others, but by the time a man is sent to go onto one of these programmes, you can pretty much guarantee that he's been prolific. He's, he's beaten his partner, terrorised her, controlled her, 
very likely sexually assaulted her multiple times. Now, the idea that we would treat these men when, in fact, the recidivism rates in terms of domestic violence and other offences against women are sky high because they're not given the message that this is wrong. In fact, they're given the message this is reasonable, acceptable, that the woman somehow is culpable to blame, asked for it, even enjoys it, is risable. We wouldn't do that with any other serial offender. And actually, we probably should, if you think about those that commit acts of theft to feed their drug or alcohol habit. We should look at those people with compassion and we should certainly be directing them towards treatment programmes and rehabilitation programmes. But men make a choice to, to beat women. If he lashed out at a work colleague, he wouldn't have an option of going on a treatment programme. If you also look at treatment programmes, as they're known, uh, in prison, run by the probation service for sex offenders. Well, by the time the sex offender is caught, he's been at it for some time, unless he's the unluckiest man on the planet. For him to go to prison, his crimes are going to be pretty heinous. And then you teach him how not to be, quote unquote, attracted to children. Well, excuse me, this isn't about a sexual attraction to children. I reject the term paedophile because that medicalises acts of sexual violence towards children. Often, if we look at at offenders like Jimmy Saville, these men will sexually abuse boys, girls, adults, and in Jimmy Saville's case, of course, even corpses. So there's no such thing as someone who is programmed to be a paedophile, who has a gene that can explain his offending behaviour. So what do these offender sex offender programmes tell him? Well, they tell him to use the language that was successfully used by John Warboys, <coughs> excuse me, the black cab rapist, who was about to be released on parole some time ago, a year or so ago, because he convinced the parole board that he was full of remorse, that he was no danger to society whatsoever. This is a man who raped hundreds of vulnerable women and drugged them prior to the sexual assault. He had learned the language on those courses that he was attending in prison. And because feminists then stepped in representing some of his victims, feminist lawyers, and said, you can't let him out. He's still a grave danger to women. He's never admitted to the vast majority of his crimes. He didn't even admit to those that he was convicted of. Because they stepped in, he's still in prison where he should be because he's a real danger. But out of that whole legal case and the trauma for these victims that thought that he was about to come out of prison, we learned that, in fact, men that have been on sex offender programmes in prison are slightly more likely to re-offend than are men who haven't been on the sex offender programme. This is not an illness, so therefore treatment is inappropriate. We need to deter, and if they commit those acts, we need to keep them away from the rest of society until they recognise that there are real consequences and sanctions if they do it again. That's the only so-called treatment that they need. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned a study that was done comparing men who've been on a programme to men who is it to men who haven't been on a programme. Uh, but the, the most interesting thing that you drew out of that was the, the control group. Well, in terms of domestic violence, um, what what we saw was that the vast majority of of women were still in some way being controlled by those men. That many of the women after that these men had been on the treatment programme, 
uh, were still scared that, in fact, some of the men admitted that they were using different tactics, so there's no longer a black eye or a visible injury, but they shift their technique to control and to, to put uh, fear in the women. And if we think about it with how male violence works, particularly in interpersonal heterosexual relationships, men don't need to actually hold a gun to women's heads or a knife to their throat because that would be too, too troublesome, too tiring, too inconvenient and too illegal. So how it works is that there's a threat. There's a threat at the beginning of the relationship and occasionally throughout if she gets a little bit out of hand and starts to think for herself or dare to defy him. And if you look at it more generally, we as women are warned very regularly that if we step out of line, something very bad could happen to us, which is why we've got feminism, because we refuse to be curtailed. So, for example, one woman every three days dies as a result of domestic violence. Women are raped every day. Women are raped and sexually assaulted. Women are sexually harassed at work. I'm not painting a picture of women walking around terrified and cowed, but it's a reminder that if we get in danger, if we go into a back of a taxi, for example, we're a little bit drunk, or if we walk home and we take a, a, a scenic route at, at night, and if we don't behave ourselves as we're expected to, and if things happen to us, as I've just outlined, well, we will be blamed anyway, and we'll be held accountable for our actions, and very rarely do the men get convicted. So that the control group of, of women who didn't experience domestic violence compared to those that did. I mean, there wasn't really an awful lot of difference in terms of the way that they experienced that violence, that abuse and that control. Louise, you write in the end of your piece uh, that it won't wash to just associate people who are opposed to the Gender Recognition Act with the right. I mean, can that be true, uh, considering how dominant the uh, culture is that comes from the US? Well, I guess this is a task, isn't it, to sort of try and break away from that? from that American culture and, and, and to start to think a bit more independently about these issues. I mean, on the issue of prisons, actually, it's a really good example because it, it, you've currently got in America an increasingly loud section of the left that are calling to defund prisons, uh, defund the police, basically abolish the criminal justice system. They have not considered at all violence against women in that, as far as I can tell. Or if they do, it's in an incredibly naive and superficial way. Um, in some ways, what we've seen in this country as well as in the US is this sort of terrible alliance between the sections of the left that are very naive about crime and think that if you just stick someone on a course, uh, you know, an offenders programme, then they'll see the error of their ways and they'll be safe. So that's come from the left. And then from the right, you've had the sections of the, of the right that don't want to fund for public services properly. And so these two groups have had sort of <laughs> beautiful meeting of minds where they can just avoid having to actually spend money on the problem of violence against women and then claim ideological um, justification for it. And I really worry that this could happen as well with, with increasingly loud calls to defund policing in prisons. And actually, you know, an austerity Tory government could potentially leap at the chance to, to um, roll back some of the gains that we've made in terms of having actual services available. So I think that, again, this is a, a situation where we need to not really be thinking in terms of in terms of left or right, particularly woke left, which honestly I think has no particular interest in women's issues at all. Or any politics. No, shown every opportunity, taking every opportunity to steamroll the women's interests. And actually thinking a bit more in, in a non-partisan way about what serves women's interests in this particular case. And in this case, it's, it's, it's stripping away the naivety about 
men who commit these, this kind of violence and properly funding services that will keep women safe. Com- completely agree. And in mm. fact, I think this is where, in a sense, the two, our two articles merge in a way in some, in some respects because, you know, you talk just there about the, some of the left uh, in the States demanding defunding the police. And you said, I completely agree with you, this could be a Tory government that looks at this and thinks this is a great idea. They're already doing it, actually. Because what the Crown Prosecution Service has done in recent years, and they're, of course, denying this, but there is a High Court challenge uh, to to their policies in in January by feminists, feminist lawyers. What they're doing is saying, okay, so we can't really be bothered to spend time and money prosecuting rape unless it's a really, really, really notorious stranger rapist. And... We have a situation now where we have a 0.7% conviction rate for rape of those cases that are passed from police to the Crown Prosecution Service. So it's absolutely appalling. And in the 40 years I've been a feminist campaigner against male violence, I've never, ever seen a situation as bad as where we have almost decriminalised rape. We have very, very few cases of domestic violence, even at the most serious end, going to court. What we're being told is, well, women could take an injunction. Well, that's the civil law and it costs money to take an injunction. Or, as we've discussed earlier, he could go on a course instead of going to court because, of course, rape trials are very expensive. So we are in a situation, aren't we, Louise, where we've got a partial defunding of police and the courts and the criminal justice system, but only when it comes to violence against women. Now, when I've spoken to activists in the States about this defund the police nonsense, and I have to say, not one African-American feminist that I've spoken to who is at the coalface of challenging male violence, thinks this is a good idea. We all would love for there to be, have no need to be a police force, courts, etc. Of course it would, because that would mean there'd be no crime. But when we say, what about rape? What about, what about repeat victimisation of women in domestic violence situations? Because she's living with him, she's going home every night, or he's coming home every night. What about child sexual abuse by the father or another male relative? Because remember, they live in the same house. What about these crimes that are perpetrated against women in brothels every day? The women who were prostituted, the woke left called sex workers. Well, they say in response, why don't we have um, rehabilitation? Why don't we have restorative justice? And what that means, because I did actually ask repeatedly, what do you mean by restorative justice within the community? Imagine a woman has been raped, I say. She's 20 years old. She's been raped by a man who's local. They all know who he is. You're suggesting instead of taking him to court or having him arrested and let the jury, let the people decide if there is a case against him, which is what justice is supposed to be in any democratic society. They say, well, no, what would happen is that we would get community leaders to call him to task, to ask him to come to a meeting, a trust circle. Uh, where he sits there and he accounts for his actions and she's there, his victim, and he apologises to her and he pledges to these community leaders not to do it again. Well, I'm really sorry, but that sounds a little bit like what men say to women. I won't do it again, sweetheart. He brings home a five quid bunch of Tesco flowers and he promises never to do it again. But also, who are community leaders? Right, we never actually talk about community leaders when when we think about white society. It's only ever with, say, for example, indigenous Canadians or religious um, uh, Muslim people or ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. Who are these community leaders? Extremely conservative patriarchal men. 
So how exactly is this going to work, restorative justice? I guess what you're potentially hinting at is a kind of unholy alliance between uh, conservative, I guess social conservative, let's just deal with this in the community, and the kind of woke, let's get rid of all criminal justice, let's get rid of the police. Is that, is that do you think, possibly what's happening? They don't think that they're alive, do they? No, but I think in practice they are. Yeah. But, I mean, how does, uh, how does the woke thing work? Because you've got the woke idea of defunding the police, let's just uh, trust everybody, it's all going to be fine. And then you've got the kind of cancel culture element of wokery, which is zero tolerance, extreme, puritanical, one strike and you're out. I don't really understand how, how do those two fit together. It's interesting, isn't it? Because cause actually, if you think about the way that most of us, most feminists who will be very clear on social media that we don't accept death and rape threats from extreme trans activists, that we will respond by saying, uh, you are acting exactly like the violent man that you are, for example. That, that, that there aren't very many of us that haven't had a little visit from the police when that has been uh, made, when our remarks have been made public. They want, they want us to be arrested. They want us to be criminalised for saying, trans women are trans women. We are not going to deny you your rights, but we will point out reality and I certainly have had a visit from from the police I was there I was on a Sunday lunchtime getting ready to sit down to a really nice meal with some friends and two very embarrassed female police officers turned up telling me that I had committed potentially a hate crime malicious communication one tweet this was of course um what did the tweet say it was something like trans women are trans women you are acting like a violent bloke which is exactly what you are. I mean, these were extreme trans activists, and I would normally be extremely well-mannered, and if somebody lives as a woman, even if they're an natal male, I will give them that courtesy, out of, out of good manners. We all know it's a fallacy, but if that is how they live, then their lives are obviously very difficult, and I don't want to add to that. I'm talking about those that have capitalised on this cesspit of misogyny that the extreme trans activists have created. Uh, and so, you know, thankfully I live with a lawyer um, and I know a lot about the criminal justice system and I told them that it would be really difficult for them if they pursued this case and they left and, and were very polite about it but, but I know of women who don't understand as much about the criminal law, don't have support, who've been arrested in front of their young children, who've been hauled down to the police station where they've had to breastfeed their children. I've known of, of women who have been threatened with prison if they didn't withdraw certain remarks. So you're absolutely right, of course. They don't mind when we face the, the, uh, the, the, the arm of the law, but they certainly don't want it when men are out raping and killing women. All of a sudden, we're supposed to just deal with it within the community. Interestingly, that is what many of us that are activists in this area have been railing against forever. You know, Sharia courts, rabbinical courts, uh, where there's been horrific child abuse and horrific abuse of women where we're told by the rabbis or the imam we will deal with this and the police have been really happy often to let them deal with it because of course they can't be bothered it's only violence against women and children who gives a damn i mean not all of course but often you know they're they're busy they're tired they're stressed and if some rabbi's saying well look you know we'll deal with it don't you worry they'll they'll take that i guess it's partly a case of it being a lot easier to police tweets than it is to violence. I think it's just straightforward hypocrisy as well, isn't it? They want to defund the police when it comes to uh, 
something like domestic violence, but they're quite happy to arrest feminists <laughs> for doing <laughs> tweets. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. I think it's hard to square that, except through hypocrisy. It, it is interesting, and I do um, address this a little bit in the piece that some sections of the woke left are very enthused about um, Me Too. And will, and of course, you know, the, the various cases that emerged during Me Too went all the way from Harvey Weinstein being the most famous perpetrator who, who raped dozens of women, maybe more, through to quite minor acts of um, not even necessarily sexual criminal behaviour, but sometimes sort of inappropriate behaviour. Like that all got swept up in the same thing with Me Too. And it's sort of interesting that on the one hand you have, I mean, I know personally feminists who are incredibly sensitive about quite small acts of inappropriate behaviour from men, including online, and then will tell, we'll tell you that sex workers work. Yeah. yeah, simultaneously. And you sort of think, why is, I don't know, something like a man touching a colleague on the shoulder at work, an act of sexual violation, but a woman being penetrated for money isn't. And it, I, I, I'm not quite sure how to deal with those contradictions, <clears throat> except maybe to point out that the woke feminists tend to only go for cases where the perpetrators are sort of safely privileged. Right. So like Harvey Weinstein, extremely wealthy, white, businessman you know he's he's sort of someone that you can absolutely accuse of the worst kind of sexual violence which you could commit without being accused of anything whereas something like Rotherham as we were talking about earlier the risk is for feminists who talk about Rotherham that they might be accused of racism see the, the thing about Rotherham and and the male left is that maybe it's the only reason I don't necessarily agree fully but I don't think that the male left has ever really cared about child sexual abuse when it, mm. white girls Black girls, Asian girls, I don't think they've ever really cared. I think that it's not really their issue. After the revolution, it'll all be sorted, so just put up with it for now. Or it's not really, you know, an issue for comrades to, to prioritise. And <clears throat> my, my experience with, um, with investigating these cases way back in the early 2000s was that some of the parents of the victims were racist. Um, they thought this was about Packies. Um, defiling their girls, just a small number of them, but I did interview them and they did go to the BMP and say, since these Muslims have come in, our girls aren't safe. So that was that was their perspective and it's a racist perspective, obviously. And some of this was driven by desperation and not having the educational context to see that actually men don't rape girls because they're Muslim Asian, they rape girls because they're child rapists, because they're pimps, whatever. And then the other side of that I had was going to the Guardian newspaper that at that time I wrote for a lot and asking the section editor if I could break this story about these gangs in the north that had been identified by parents, by car number plates, by all kinds of really uh, clever, clever means where they'd handed dossiers to the police over and over again. And the police had just said, <coughs> we don't want to race riot. And where Channel 4 documentaries were supposed to be broadcasting a, uh, a film called The Edge of the City that really exposed this. And the then Chief Constable of West Yorkshire said, we'd better not, uh, we'd better not uh, put this out, better not um, you know, promote, provoke a, a race riot, because it was in Oldham at the time when there'd been serious unrest on the streets. So again, you know, the cannon fodder, um, the collateral damage was 
it's always the, the abuse victims. But then, you know, asking asking the editors of the Guardian if we could run a piece on this, I was told that we could be perceived as being Islamophobic. Now, I'm a feminist on the left. Um, I haven't ever explained child sexual abuse or any violence against women as coming from a particular social class, ethnicity or race, ever. I've always been very clear that this is about male dominance, male power, male opportunism, women's subservience. So why they thought that because these perpetrators were primarily Pakistani Muslim, that this would come across as racist, I do not know. We have a long tradition in this country, in criminology, in journalism, elsewhere, where we look at the phenomena of different groups of men that commit crimes that are organised. In other words, they make money. So the Maltese, back in the 60s, that, that you know ran pimping operations. And then there were different ethnic and racial groups that ran um, particular drug smuggling. And then there were the white men from the East End that ran other kind of protection rackets. So there was absolutely no, and I, I hate this term, but I have to use it to explain what they were saying, Islamophobia in this. It was straightforwardly looking at why the police had turned a blind eye and how this will not fare, this will not do, um, we will not get justice if this is how we turn to look at this. So I went to the Sunday Times with the piece and they ran it and then a year later the Guardian ran another piece that, that was a kind of follow-on from it, eventually. Mm. So I just think that the Liberals, the Liberals are the ones that have dropped the ball on this, not necessarily the left. Mm. Although I do think that the left has a shameful record of ignoring all sexual violence. Uh, from, from especially organised gangs. Mm. Uh, do you think uh, potentially it's just following on from your piece, Reese? But do you think there's a you both feel like you've uh, you're on a different track now to uh, the mainstream left? Obviously, the Guardian you used to write for the Guardian regularly, and they have their own uh, stance on trans issues. And um, you mentioned uh, your views on. Um, Prostitution and just being termed sex workers and it's their own choice and that's a kind of libertarian view. Do you, is there, I mean, I guess, is there anyone that you identify with in politics that you think, yeah, that's, you know, that's what we believe, that's who we kind of can get behind? <laughs> Blank looks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that, is that a kind of, I mean, what about the, the Women's Equality Party? What are they? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're more performance art than politics, aren't they? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of them. I think they did come out in favour of the Nordic model at one point. They did. I met with them a few times yeah. and then they kind of backed off from that. Yeah. And now it's the usual capitulation to the kind of blue fringe ideology. Yeah, a lot of the big feminist orgs have been very cowardly on some of this, unfortunately. Um, but then I feel quite optimistic because actually I think that the GRA stuff in particular really... Um, like whipped up a new feminist fervour among the sort of women who maybe weren't very engaged with feminism previously and actually this really they just found it so appalling and now they're, they're now they're engaged with other stuff so there is a really really positive grassroots feminism happening and it is it is making change which is really good it's just it's just quite hard to categorise at the moment I agree I think what was interesting about your piece Louise was that you talked about how Many of the women that resisted the self-declaration, the, the, the changes to the GRA, were quote-unquote ordinary women, um, by which you mean, correct me if I'm wrong, women who are not involved in party politics or in fact don't necessarily have a position on the left or the right. 
women, often working class women, who have been pretty much disenfranchised um, and, you know, not through their own efforts, mm. but through the structures uh, under which they live. And that is the case, and feminism for me has to be about all women, or it's pointless, and this is why. The reason I would agree on the US feminism, uh, the critique of US feminism, it's very much a lean-in feminism. It's very much the glass ceiling type of, well, you know, we need to look at how we can get 200 women together in a room to do this charity event where we can raise a lot of money to do then this big celebrity anti-trafficking um, bonanza, rather than actually looking at the women at the very bottom of the pile. And that includes women who we don't like, who might be racist, they might be anti-lesbian, they might be really offensive in their views, to me as a person on the left. Um, but that this that we have to liberate all women. It has to be about liberating all women. Where Louise and I would disagree, I think, is that you don't necessarily have to have position feminism on the left or on the right. So I think that women can be from every single walk of life and should benefit from from, from feminism, should actually be recognised, however unpleasant they are or privileged, that they need feminism because of male violence, and this is the only thing that unites us, I think, and of course our lack of, of bodily autonomy. But I do think that if we give up the left to the anti-feminist woman-hating men, then we have lost what is, I believe, our rightful place as, and again, social justice movement has been absolutely ruined, for me as a phrase, but, but for a movement that seeks liberation of an oppressed class. My, uh, my friend Mary Harrington, who's also a feminist writer, she has described the GRA as um, feminism's Brexit moment, in that it was the moment where all these women who hadn't necessarily really been engaged with feminism before weren't necessarily very uh, attentive to a lot of party politics, saw this outrageous thing being proposed by a, 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 an elite that had no real you know, connection with their lives and were like, bugger this, no. And, and made a big fuss on social media and on Mumsnet and all this sort of stuff, and they succeeded, and they managed to, to push this back, and they were accused of being the most terrible, various phobic things as a consequence, but they did win. And this is, of course, one way of framing Brexit, that it was about ordinary people who weren't necessarily engaged in politics saying, actually, I've had enough, and being accused of bigotry as a result. But actually, you know, they, they did manage it, and I think it's... I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really interested in that idea of feminism having a Brexit moment because we've had a long, long time of the feminist agenda being set by this tiny, tiny niche within academia, in particular, and also within the media of women who are not representative demographically of the rest of women, and also have very, very unusual opinions <laughs> on all sorts of issues that most people would disagree with them on. And I think maybe that that elite group is not going to have the same influence that it has had historically. Anything that takes this away from the ivory tower would be such good news. Yeah, the vast majority of women, if you ask them, you know, would you want your daughter to be in prostitution, have an absolutely unequivocal answer. You know, the people who are saying that sex workers work are such a, such a tiny, tiny niche. And yet they're in academia. Yes. And they're the ones <laughs> whose pathetic pieces of research based mm. on nothing ends up in headlines, whether mm. it's in The Lancet mm. or tabloid newspapers or broadsheets. And the influence that they've had on the language, on the sanitisation of the language relating to sexual exploitation. As Louis says, prostitution becomes sex work, pimps become managers, brothels become massage parlours. And they will never need to be in prostitution. They've got options, they've got choices. 
And that creates a star guide for uh, newspapers like The Guardian. Mm. Totally. Where they talk about, and they've had to take down a couple, more than two or three headlines in recent years because we've made a fuss, those of us that care about this. Mm. Things like child sex workers trafficked from the Philippines. Mm. What bit of that headline is okay? Child sex workers. There was even one headline that used the term juvenile sex workers. I wonder what effect the internet might have on all of this as well, because that's the other sort of... That's the other the other factor in all this pushing back against the GRA, that women were able to do this online. Um, and women, therefore, who don't necessarily have a professional involvement in politics and might have a lot else on their plates in terms of being mothers or, you know, working really long hours or whatever. They were able to participate in, in, in public discussion in a way that was much more difficult to do 20 years ago. So it will be interesting to see whether a kind of populist feminism can, can take advantage of of the opportunities offered by the internet. Although, of course, the internet has had some other devastating effects on feminism and women. So, yeah, I don't know what direction it might take. I, I find it unlikely that the sort of academic... Um, liberal feminism is going to persist in its level of influence but I guess we'll just have to see what happens Julie and Louise thank you so much for coming on the Critic Podcast it's been a really interesting discussion thank you thank you if you've enjoyed listening to the Critic Podcast why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.